On Thursday, August 5th, 2010, a shaft in the Copiapo Copper, Copper Gold Mine in San Jose, Chile, collapsed, trapping 33 mi- miners over 2,000 feet underground. Now, the Chilean government bored eight holes into the mine to explore the situation down there. And 17 days later, a note was received that was attached to a drill bit. It said, We are well in the shelter. The 33, referring to those 33 miners. Well, knowing that everyone was alive, the country intensely pursued rescuing them. It took 52 more days before the men were able to be rescued by an operation that consisted of winching each man up to the surface one at a time. And after 24 hours, the last man surfaced, and the paramedic on the scene held up a sign that read, Mission accomplished, Chile. It's estimated that one billion people watched the rescue live on TV or the web. Now, this is a classic rescue mission. And whether you remember baby Jessica, who fell down the well in Texas in 1987, or even this recent hostage situation that happened in Alabama just earlier this week, someone was in trouble, and the world's attention is grabbed as we wait to hear what will happen. We want to know if the mission will be successful, and we anxiously wait, hoping to hear that the news is good. Well, we see in Scripture that God has a mission. Unfortunately, we don't always see the intensity and the excitement because we're not aware of the rescue mission taking place, but it happens every day. What is God's mission, and who is it that God is rescuing? Well, in Scripture, we know that God will accomplish many things, but a primary objective is found in 1 Timothy 2, and verses 3 through 4. Paul says, This is good and acceptable in the sight of our God, our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, we love it when people are saved from tragedy, but sometimes we miss the fact that God loves it too. And the Bible paints a portrait of a creator who is not disinterested in mankind, but he's wholly interested. He is not dispassionate with the human race, but he is consumed by it. And if we are to understand God better, we must understand the heart of God, what he desires, and his mission. I hear some of you flipping, but there are many passages in the Bible that we could go to. But the the passage that I want to specifically look at tonight is the parable of the lost sheep in Luke 15. So you got your fingers warmed up? Just flip back a little bit. (laughs) Now Jesus' parable on a particular aspect sums up, you know, much of what God is interested in. And these are actually, this is one parable out of three longer parables, but we'll just look at that first one tonight. And if we were to be interested in our God and to take part in His mission, we must understand what His mission is. So Luke 15, verses 1 through 7. Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near to him to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable, saying, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. 
And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Well, just in this short passage of Scripture, you know, we're presented with three groups of people. Um, yeah, I'll call the, the first is the searching sinners, and the second is the spurious spiritual, and the third is the sympathetic shepherd. I'm using my seminary training for good use. <laughs> Maybe not. We will see that the parable of a shepherd <laughs> illustrates key elements of God's character and his heart and his mission. And when we get to the sympathetic shepherd, I'll look at five aspects of God's heart and his mission and that kind of are fleshed out from just some of these verses here. Well, we see that in the searching sinners that, that Luke states that all the tax collectors and all the sinners were coming near to him to listen to him. Now, quite a, ga- a crowd is gathering around, and Luke uses a bit of emphasis because he says all the tax collectors and sinners were coming to listen to him. And this group isn't entirely made of only sinners and tax collectors, but Luke you know, highlights who it is that our attention should be on. He wants us to see that there were tax collectors and sinners coming to Jesus. You know, and I always find it fascinating that we see that the ones that we might think that are least interested in Jesus' message are the ones that he often attracts. You know, if I were to ask you to just picture in your mind what a group of sinners would look like, you know, what would come into your imagination? Now, if you were out at the mall or you were at a sporting event and you were people watching, you know, who is it that you would see that you might say, that's a group of sinners? It might be helpful as we start to kind of dive into this teaching. Now, in Jesus' day, if you were a Jew, you were expected to act like a Jew. You know, pride and shame were big pictures of Jewish life. And on a purely cultural level, if you were a respected Jew, you were to do what Jews were expected to do. You, know, you were to uh, keep the Sabbath holy. You were to pay your tithes and you were to offer up your sacrifices. So to be classified as a sinner is that you were outwardly known for not keeping the commands of Jewish law and you perhaps openly indulged in such unappealing behavior. You know, and to add to that group, that was coming to Jesus, tax collectors meant a whole profession of people even fit to be called sinners. Now, who were the sinners? And, and all of us might admit, you know, being here at church, that we're all sinners. But will we label ourselves as a sinner gathering around Jesus? Paul says in 1 Timothy 1, he says, you know, to get a kind of picture of, of who sinners might be, he says, the, the law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. So being a sinner meant you were in great company, right? Unholy, profane, those who kill their fathers or mothers. This is a great group to be in, isn't it? 
Now to the Pharisees, anyone who was not as stringent to the law as they expected someone to be as stringent to the law to act, they might consider a sinner. And remember that a Pharisee was not uh, a religious profession. It was not a title, but it was a sect. You know, it would be something like if you were a Methodist or a Baptist you know, or a Pharisee. You belonged to a certain group. Although their attitude towards the law and the knowledge of the law you might have held them in that respect, at least towards the people in the towns. Nonetheless, since sinners are lumped together with tax collectors, it's more likely to say that they were people of poor reputation that were coming to listen to Jesus speak. Now, maybe not as bad as Paul you know, paints the picture. Probably true to a point. There were probably those that gathered that did indulge in such activities openly. But they were gathered around Jesus, those that were not just your average Jew. Again, enough that outwardly one could be labeled a sinner, not just by the Pharisees, but by Luke himself. Now, the other group that was mentioned was the tax collectors. And they were also distasteful, not only to the Pharisees, but to most of the other Jews. You know, we don't know exactly what town that Jesus was in. All we know that is he's on his way to Jerusalem. He's on his way to the cross. But people are gathering as they might be going to Jerusalem as well, to the Passover, and listening to what he has to say along the way. But who exactly are the tax collectors? Well, the tax collectors in our day, you know, they're not very appreciated, but they're not as conspicuous as they were back in Jesus' day. You know, nobody likes to pay taxes now, and we would consider our system fair. But if you were a tax collector during Jesus' day, you were legally allowed to extort money from people. They wouldn't put it in those terms, but they did. You know, they were Jews who were, who were bidding on a contract in order to be able to tax. And once they were awarded that appointment from Rome, they were allowed to tack on any fee of their own on top of what they collected. And then most of them did at the expense of their own people, of their fellow Jews. So most people, most Jews, rightfully so, felt as if the tax collectors were taking advantage of their own. Maybe today we would consider a mobster to be a good analogy, although they didn't offer protection. This wasn't the first time that tax collectors were gathering around, though, to hear a message of repentance. You know, in Luke 3, earlier on, we see... And some tax collectors also came to be baptized. They came to John the Baptist to be baptized. And they said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said, Collect no more than what you have been ordered to. So the tax collectors had accepted John the Baptist's message of repentance, um, that God's kingdom was near. So he said, Repent and be baptized. But when they came, they said, What does that mean according to what we do? Because to be a tax collector was to be looked down upon. Should they leave their profession? Well, John says no. They should rather act responsibly in the office that they hold. It wasn't the job of the tax collector that was sinful. It was that tax collectors tended to leverage the power they had in order to get away with sinful behaviors. So needless to say, Jesus was attracting the people that we might normally think would be opposed to a message about God and turning towards God. But as Matthew said in his gospel, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority 
and not as their scribes. So Jesus' message of, of bold truth, while coupled with his compassionate heart and his healing hand, was refreshing to the people. And it was different. Now the reality of Jesus was that while people were mesmerized by his teaching and drawn to him, many of them aren't always staying around. Some came for the free lunches or the healings or a number of other things that Jesus provided to them, but then they left when his teaching got difficult. But still, people were drawn to Jesus. And so there was a crowd gathering around. And we see the spurious, spurious spiritual. And the issue wasn't just that the people were coming to him to, to listen to hear him teach, but the Pharisees and scribes took issue with the fact that Jesus was hanging out with them and he was sharing meals with them. You know, both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and he eats with them. You know, maybe it was good if Jesus kept business separate from his personal life, but intermingling them was a bad idea to the Pharisees. The scribes and the Pharisees were the religious elite, and they were threatened not only by Jesus' teaching, but also by his lifestyle. To intermingle with sinners opened them up to being unclean. And in order to avoid being religiously unclean, the Pharisees, they set up these barriers, these precautionary measures to keep people out. They were like guardrails for their lives. So restricting them, not only to get them, you know, keep them from getting too close to somebody who was unclean, but also keeping those that were unclean from getting to them as well. And we see this in Mark 7, that the Pharisees and some of the scribes gathered around when they had come from Jerusalem and had seen that some of his disciples were eating their bread with impure hands, that is, unwashed hands. For the Pharisees and all Jews do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands, thus observing the traditions of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they cleanse themselves. And there are many other things which they have received in order to observe, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and copper pots. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked Jesus, they said, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat their bread with impure hands? So whenever they were mingling with other people or they had contact with other people, they would scrupulously wash their hands to make sure that they were ceremonially clean. And this wasn't, you know, just adding germex and having a having germaphobe. They were trying to make themselves clean because of the people whom that they were in contact with. And they want to know why Jesus did not follow the same traditions of the elders. And Jesus had to explain to them the law and how it applied. And then he said that it's not the outside of a cup that makes a man unclean, but it's something that is inside that makes the person unclean. And they didn't like that. Especially the scribes, because the scribes were the academic elite whose job it was to, sh to know and understand the law of Moses, but not only to be able to interpret it, but to apply it as well. And that application was considered the oral law, which Mark had described earlier as the tradition of the elders. And it was their interpretations, and it was often put on par with the written law. They wore special clothing, and they were highly regarded. And these were not necessarily the elite by status or wealth, but by the profession that they were in. 
Now Luke refers to them at times as lawyers. The scribes too are often found with the Pharisees looking to accuse Jesus of wrongdoing. And in keeping in line with their profession, they tried to point out when people transgressed the law. You know, nobody goes out and tries to point out when people are obeying the law, only when people are breaking it. And with Jesus, they were trying to find something. I'm sure they were thinking that because Jesus wasn't formally trained, or he was a part of their class, he must violate their rules somewhere. And the example of dining with sinners had come up before. He was questioned why he would eat with sinners and tax collectors when he went to eat with Matthew. Matthew, remember, was called out from the profession of being a tax collector. And when Jesus heard this in Matthew 9, he said, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. And Jesus said to the Pharisees and scribes, Go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners." And Jesus didn't discriminate. He didn't eat only with the sinners and tax collectors, but he did dine with the Pharisees as well. And Jesus combined both powerful teaching and approachability that was often unseen by religious leaders in his day. And instead of the Pharisees and the scribes seeing Jesus reach out to those who had rejected the path of righteousness, they began to grumble and to complain you know, the, the Pharisees and the scribes, they did not see their need for a Savior. And if the Pharisees could prove that Jesus was like one of the ones he attracted, they could dismiss him along with all of his teaching. And that's why they were always trying to trap him. But honestly, I have to find that sometimes when I see the Pharisees, I see myself. And you might admit that you see yourself as well. You know, it's easy to follow rules. Do this. Don't do that. You know, okay, that sounds good to me. As long as I follow the guardrails and the barriers in my life and stay on one side or the other, I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. But what if someone doesn't follow a rule or tradition that, you know, maybe I'm used to? Maybe I grew up or something maybe that I've been taught. And sometimes we don't know what to do with these people. You know, do we listen to this person? Or do we filter out the good from the bad? Do we throw out everything they say completely? These are good questions to ask. And especially when we're at a church that we love and we wholeheartedly defend. As we've, we've come from other traditions or other, other churches as well, Sometimes there becomes a turmoil about what to do with the teaching or the traditions that we've come from. And so we really need to focus on whether they are held up to Scripture or not. So I can kind of sympathize with the Pharisees and the scribes. They don't know what to do with Jesus because they offend Him. They do things that they have been used to doing and upholding. And some of them have careers that are laid out to follow certain rules. And Jesus is starting to infringe on their lifestyles. Now, I don't condone the Pharisees, but I just say that I can kind of understand. I understand that it's not right. 
I should recognize it when I see it in my own life. The attitude in the Pharisees and the scribes, what it did was eventually kept the very people whom God is trying to reach. It kept themselves away from them and kept them from coming to the Pharisees and the scribes. And Luke said they grumbled. You know, they weren't happy. They weren't supportive. And they voiced that displeasure. So now we kind of turn to the sympathetic shepherd. And quickly, you know, Jesus picks up on their grumbling. He probably expected it because this was not the first time that they uh, came to attack him or that they grumbled in his presence. And so Jesus tells a parable. And Jesus loved parables, and he loved them because he had earlier revealed that those who get it understand what he's saying, and those that don't are just merely entertained or amused. But in this parable, the message is clear because Jesus explains it right afterwards. And what does he start with? He says, he asks a question, he says, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it. Now the question is rhetorical in nature. If you're a shepherd and a sheep goes missing, don't you go and look for it? Because the sheep are in the shepherd's care. And Jesus has used this metaphor in several other places. In John 10.24, he said the Jews, you know, when the Jews gathered around him, they were saying, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And that got on their nerves. Like, just say you are the Christ. Just say it. Are you the Christ? Just say yes. And he wouldn't. So what did he say? He says, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they testify of me. But you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Now the sheep are in the care of the shepherd, and the shepherd cares and loves the sheep. And I was always, uh, as a kid, growing up in the, in the church that I grew up, I always would see pictures of Jesus out in a field with sheep surrounded him. And I always thought those were kind of bizarre. And I know the illustration that he is a shepherd, but he's not a real shepherd of sheep. He's a shepherd of people. And I think that's, that's sometimes what's missed in, in some of those, uh, those old portraits and old paintings. Is that Jesus cared for his people. Now you might wonder if this parable is about a person who already is one of Jesus' sheep, meaning one of his followers who later wanders away. In other words, does this mean that Jesus is talking about a person who's already a follower of Christ, who's become wayward and then returns again? Well, just hermeneutically, when you look at a parable, every single detail does not flesh out in real life. So there does not need to be something that corresponds detail for detail a parable has one major point. But also remember who Jesus is talking to. And his message was to, he was preaching to the Jews for them to repent and to prepare themselves because the kingdom of God was at hand. Now, did they repent? Well, some did, but as a whole, most of them rejected Jesus' claim and Jesus' message. So as Jews, they were already chosen. They were already set apart for special blessing by God through Abraham. So they were his sheep, but they rejected Christ and refused that blessing. 
And so they remained wayward. Well, what about the number of sheep? Now, 100 is just a large, nice, round number. That doesn't mean that most people are already following Jesus. Right? And that 1% of them, 1 out of 100, wandered away into sin. Because that would contradict Jesus' earlier teaching that broad is the path that leads to destruction, but narrow is the gate that leads to everlasting life, and there are few who find it. So in parables, we're looking for that one big picture, that one central meaning. Not every detail corresponds to something in real life. That's why Jesus doesn't stress who watches the sheep when the shepherd goes away. Jesus' point in the parable is to highlight the fact that compared to the 99 that are staying around the shepherd, the one wayward sheep is special and important. The sinners and the tax collectors, despite what the Pharisees and scribes may think, are worth rescuing. So the shepherd, he goes and he looks for him. Now in the sheep herding profession, the shepherd is responsible for his sheep. And according to law, if a sheep goes missing, the shepherd must pay for it. Now, maybe from a statistical standpoint, you're thinking, you know, if one sheep wanders away, what's the big deal? All right, I'm a school teacher. If I say one out of my 60 students wanders away, what's the big deal? Right? His mama would take issue with me. All right? And so these shepherds worked for somebody, and they had to pay back what they owed. So I'm not saying that little Johnny is the same as the sheep that goes wandering away, but they had a responsibility. And you could even think of something as frivolous as losing keys, right? Or losing your wallet. And when something goes missing, and I know that specifically applies to somebody in here, <laughs> with a huge issue of keys, but you can just think of something when you lose something, how it kind of becomes a burden to you. And you just don't say, oh, we just forget it. You know, keys are keys. I mean, they're only a couple dollars at the hardware store. They're worth more than that. So it can seem like a big deal, but the bottom line is a shepherd is responsible for all the sheep, and losing one is no light matter. You know, it's no light matter because the shepherd is willing to leave the other sheep unattended while he goes out to find that lost one. And nobody argues with this point. You know, of course, the shepherd must go and find that sheep. And so Jesus continues, when he found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. So the shepherd finds it roaming about the desert. He picks it up and he carries it back. He does not yell at it. He does not kick it. He does not lecture it. He just purely rejoices. What did you feel like Remember when you, when you finally found your keys? Were you happy? And the, time, the longer the time goes by from that loss, when you finally found it, you feel like rejoicing. You get excited and you feel like sharing that with somebody. And it's such a feeling that you want others to share in it. And you want people to celebrate that with you. And that's what the shepherd does. He comes home and he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep, which was lost. And you might just be thinking this is an exaggeration, but he lost it. It was gone. He found it. He's now excited. And he wants to celebrate that with others. And guess what? The people rejoice with them because they've been in that situation too. They've lost things and they finally found them. You know, we've all been there. 
We want to share in that success. When you finally find your keys, you find your wallet, we've probably helped you try to look for them. And when you finally found where they're at, we're happy for you. You know, but this is not about a sermon about how to find your keys or how to not misplace things or how to organize your life, right? You don't want self-help. You want the big picture. You want the spiritual truth of what this is really providing. And Jesus provides that to his people. So he says, I tell you, in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. I don't know if you could hear that sound, but that was a bomb dropping. The Pharisees heard it. The scribes heard it. And the sinners and the tax collectors could hear it. And that sound kind of translate like, translates like this to the Pharisees, where Jesus says, basically, all you Pharisees and scribes who are trusting in your own goodness, your own academic knowledge, all of you who are doing the right things, all of you who think you're good enough to please God and to get to Him all on your own and by your own doing, you Pharisees and scribes who think you need no repentance and you turn up your nose at those who are living reprobate lifestyles, guess what? God loves them as much as you. And they, these sinners and tax collectors, are worth pursuing. And they are worth Jesus' time. And to the tax collectors and sinners, and those who recognize themselves as such, who have been on the receiving end of scorn, I think that no matter what they do, They'll never be accepted by God. He says to them, guess what? God may come after you. And all of you sinners and tax collectors, God loves you and is chasing after you. He sees you lost on the hill and he wants to pick you up and carry you over his shoulders and bring you back home and rejoice. And guess what? All of heaven will rejoice with him. And why is that? Because God rejoices over sinners who repent. He loves finding lost sheep. He loves finding lost sheep. And when he finds that lost sheep, he rejoices. You know, when you rejoice to find lost keys, our God rejoices to find his lost image bearers. Because that's what it's about, right? The whole idea of sending Jesus on the cross You know, the central idea of the gospel, as much as we talk about God sending Jesus to live a righteous life and to pay the penalty for our sins so we can have access to the Father, you know, one crucial element goes missing. Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. But no one finds that way unless they're appointed to the way. The sheep do not find safety and comfort in the sheep pen sleeping inside of the shepherd if they are wandering in the wilderness, hungry and alone. Now let's be clear, the sheep did wander off. The sheep get lost. The sheep left the shepherd. And the sheep walked into danger. But it was the shepherd who rescued the sheep. The shepherd who went searching. The shepherd who pursued the sheep. And when he found that sheep, he did not lecture it. He did not shake his head and sigh. He rejoiced 
Because that is the God who loves us. And in this parable, we find five aspects of God with his central mission being saving the lost. And I'll just go through these quickly. First, you know, we see that God is personal. You know, here God is pictured as a shepherd. In the next parable, he's pictured as a woman who loses a coin. In the last parable, the prodigal son, he's pictured as a father. And our God is a personal God. You know, he's not a God who made this world and left it to run its course. We have an intimate and personal God who made us and loves us. And at some point in every person's life, they must face that reality, whether God exists. And they must decide whether God exists or not. And that's a decision that each person needs to make. And if you decide that God does exist, and God brings you to that knowledge, that truth, there are those who say that God exists, but He is not personal. He is cut off. But we know better. There are other gods that may exist, but our concern is about the God that we worship, the only existing God, and how we're to interact with Him. And because He is personal, we can have a relationship with Him. And not only is God personal, you know, whom, that we can love and receive His love, but we see that God is also a planner. You know, the, she- the shepherd did not lose his sheep, throw his hands up, because he knew that sheep go missing. It's part of who a sheep is. If sheep did not ever wander, then what is a shepherd good for? A shepherd would not be necessary. And God knew that. In Lamentations 3, 37-38, we read, Who is there who speaks, and it comes to pass, unless the Lord had commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both good and ill go forth? This might be unsettling to some, But we know that God has everything under His control. And even the most devastating events that have happened in your life are a part of His plan. And like the shepherd who goes after the sheep, God knows His objective. He has always known His objective. God dreamed up our cosmos, and He put man in it. And God told the man and the woman to follow His commands And he knew that they would disobey. And that their children would disobey. And then that God would offer them different ways to take care of their offenses. And he gave them rules to follow. And he gave them kings to lead them and prophets to guide them. But they realized what God already knew. That they could never achieve him on their own doing. Only God could redeem. And so he sent himself And he set himself for us. You know, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. And that was a part of his plan. And everyone who his object of saving is a part of that plan as well. And so not only is God personal and a planner, but he's also a pursuer. The shepherd knew that the sheep was lost and he went after it. 
And he kept going until he found it. And there's just a quick illustration. I mean, if we had more time, I would read the entire chapter. But Ezekiel 34 paints the portrait of God being a shepherd for his wayward people. And the Lord describes himself as such. I'll read a few verses from there. And you just kind of see the idea. And maybe Jesus is using this in his reference in his mind when he gave the parable. In Ezekiel 34, verse 6, God says, My flock wandered through all the mountains and on every high hill. My flock was scattered over all the surface of the earth, and there was no one to search or seek for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, surely because my flock has become a prey, my flock has even become food for all the beasts of the field for lack of a shepherd. And my shepherds did not search for my flock. So those are those who are overseeing Israel, whom God has entrusted to care for them. They're not doing their job. But rather the shepherds fed themselves and did not feed my flock. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will demand my sheep from them and make them cease from feeding sheep. So the shepherds will not feed themselves anymore, but I will deliver my flock from their mouth so that they will not be food for them. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. And as a shepherd cares for his herd in the day when he is among his scattered sheep, so I will care for my sheep and will deliver them from all the places to which they are scattered on a cloudy and gloomy day. I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and bring them to their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the streams and in all the inhabited places of the land. I will feed them in good pasture. Their grazing ground will be on the mountain heights of Israel. There they will lie down on good grazing ground and feed in rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I will feed my flock. I will lead them to rest. I will seek the lost, bring back the scattered, bind up the broken and strengthen the sick. But the fat and the strong I will destroy and I will feed them with judgment. God, because his, the leaders of Israel were not doing their job and they were not protecting and caring for the, his sheep, that God says, I will do it for them and I will be their shepherd. And Christ says, I am the good shepherd. And he picks up that analogy that God, Father, Son, and even the Holy Spirit are acting as shepherd to his people. And God pursues those who are lost. And we see that all throughout history. You know, God has pursued and shepherded his people. I mean, it was God who made Adam and Eve. And it was God who clothed them. And it was God who sought Cain and warned him not to strike Abel. And it was God who prepared Noah. It was God who chose Abraham. It was God who protected Israel and Egypt. And it was God who appointed Moses. It was God who enabled Joshua to conquer. And it was God who raised up judges. It was God who anointed Saul and David. And it was God who selected David's line to endure. It was God who sent the prophets to turn back his people. It was God who came to earth to live as a man. It was God who, sacri- who was sacrificed for our sins. It was God who was buried. It was God who raised again. And it was God who founded His church. And it was God who raised up men to proclaim His good works. It was God. It was God. And it is God who does these things. He is the initiator. 
And what he loves most of all is to seek and to save those who are lost. And he rejoices every single time that he finds them. Fourth, God is a protector and a provider because the shepherd picked up the sheep and carried it home. And we see that beautifully portrayed in Psalm 23 where David says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the path of righteousness for his name's sake. And he ends it and says, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And when Jesus referred to his sheep who hear his voice, he says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand because Christ, once he calls a sheep and finds a sheep, they are his and he protects them. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand, because I and the Father are one. And the final thing that we should never forget is that God is a praiser. I don't know if that's a word, but I'm using it. God is a praiser. All of heaven rejoiced. You know, like one billion people gathered together around their TV sets or their computers to rejoice when 33 miners were released from their underground prison, all of heaven rejoices when God holds up his sign to them that says, mission accomplished. As sinners and tax gatherers uh, gathered around Jesus, he welcomed them. He welcomed them because God's mission is to save the lost. Later in Luke, a tax collector ends up repenting. Remember, his name was Zacchaeus. And Jesus said of him, Today salvation has come to his house because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. So knowing that mission, we should allow God to use us as his instruments to accomplish that mission as well. And so a few questions we can ask ourselves. You know, as a church, as a body of believers, as we gather together, you know, how are we doing at welcoming those in that would come to listen to the word of Jesus? You know, as neighbors, how are you doing at welcoming your neighbors into your homes? Are you sharing meals with them as Jesus did? You you might say, well, you don't understand. My neighbor is a filthy pagan. Well, great. Filthy pagans, they love pizza. (laughs) And they are the ones who need Jesus. Because like the Pharisees and the scribes, we tend to put up barriers upon whom we can share the gospel message with. And God has placed us in certain, certain towns, certain neighborhoods, and certain jobs so that we may be a part of His mission. But don't forget what I said about God being the one who plans and the one who pursues. You know, we are not to worry about the results. We are just to worry about being faithful. If God wants a sheep to be found, he will find them. But think about how great it would be if we were the ones that God used to help him do that. Paul said in 1 Timothy, It's a trustworthy statement observing full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners among who I am foremost 
of all. We were all at one point in that point. That if those that profess to believe in Jesus Christ were all one who was drawn to Jesus, we might have been in the category that others looked down at us and said, you are just a sinner or a tax collector. We were so thankful that God did not put up a barrier to keep us away and that he pursued those that were seeking after him. And we may take a heart like a Pharisee, but we must remember that we were once sinners too. And for those here that may be thinking that you are running further and further away from God, He will pursue you. He loves and desires for you to be with Him. And He will not let you go if He has chosen to pursue you. Let's pray. Father God, um, as we just kind of start exploring uh, the idea of what your mission is and what you have called us to, and you know, just as... as um, you know, we think about how we can focus our minds about what you want us to do with our lives, knowing what you chiefly desire and what brings you joy. It would help us to engage our lives more fruitfully for the kingdom, help us to pursue the things that you desire. And Father, Lord, help us to remember that you love to seek and save the lost. And knowing that you love to do so, may we have that same heart. Lord, may you bless us by allowing us to be part of that as well. As a church body, as believers in the jobs we've been called to, in the neighborhoods that we've been called to, whatever facet of life or ministry that you've called us to, Father, help us to be faithful and to share in that mission as well. And we praise you in Christ's name. Amen. You are dismissed.